here, and I'm, I, I want you to know how very grateful I am for our faithful shepherds out there. Uh, your pastor, Steve, is one of them, and I'm very, very grateful for these men. There, there are so many of these men who are laboring away, most of them in small churches, laboring away in anonymity, but they're doing the hard work of uh, rightly dividing God's word of truth, studying to show themselves approved, shepherding their flocks, protecting them from wolves, feeding the flocks, and and uh, they do so, as I said, in anonymity, uh, known only to their little local churches and to uh, the head of the church, Christ himself. But I'm very grateful for these men, and uh, you're very grateful to have Steve as your pastor. So, uh, Steve, brother, thank you for this opportunity. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer, and we'll begin. Father, we thank you for this time, and we pray that as we open our mouths now that you would fill, fill it with your word, uh, sanctify us in the truth of your word, Father. We pray that your Holy Spirit do his work that he does in illumining the truth of your word to our hearts and to our minds. Father, may we feed on your word and may it nourish our souls, may it edify us, may it equip us, may it conform us more into the image of your son, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open to the book of James, James chapter 1. Right after the book of Hebrews, you'll find James. And I'm going to read James 1, 1 through 4, but our primary passage, our text of emphasis here will be verses 2 through 4, but we'll read for full context 1 through 4. This is a message I have entitled, The Truth About Trials, the truth about trials. James chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. May God bless the reading of his word. Now, this book of James was written, of course, by James. Well, there's a few different James in the New Testament, but the author of this book is James, the half-brother of Jesus. And we say the half-brother, of course, because Jesus was born of a virgin, but after Jesus' birth, and Mary and Joseph went on to have other children the old-fashioned way, and so we refer to James as the half-brother of Jesus. And I want you to notice, first of all, his humility as he opens this verse. James, a bondservant, a doulos, a slave. James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice he didn't say, oh, I'm James the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't see himself as the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. He saw himself as Christ's doulos, his slave. That's real humility. That is the humility that can be engendered only by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God. This was a man who knew that his most important relationship to Jesus Christ was not as his half-brother, was not as his earthly sibling, but was as indeed his child had been adopted into the family of God through the merits of Jesus Christ on the cross. 
James, the bondservant, the doulos of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Even more poignant when you think about it because in Jesus' earthly ministry, James did not even believe him. James didn't believe that his, son, his brother was, was God incarnate. But after his resurrection, when he saw Jesus bodily raised from the dead, then he knew. Then he knew. And he became the doulos of the Lord Jesus Christ. In verses 2 and 4, our main text here, James says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. The truth about trials, the first truth that I want us to garner here, understand, is that trials are inevitable. Trials are inevitable. Notice that James does not say, consider it all joy, my brethren, if you encounter various trials. He does not say if. He says when. Trials are an inevitability of life. Life is marked by trials, by times of tears, by times of pain. And if I were to ask for a show of hands right now, who in here is going through a trial right now? And I'm not necessarily asking you to do that, but if I were... Probably just about every hand in here would go up. It's to some degree or another, all of us are either going through a trial, we have just come out of a trial, or we're about to go into one. Life is marked by trials. It's marked by trouble. Matthew chapter 6, verse 34, Jesus says, Do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care of itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Each day. Each and every day we encounter some kind of trouble, do we not? Some more so than others, of course. John 16, verse 33, Jesus says, In this world you will have trouble. Job chapter 5, verse 7, Job says, For man who is born of woman, man is born for trouble as the sparks fly upward. Man is born for trouble as the sparks fly upward. Just when you make a fire, a campfire with some longs, inevitably what happens, right? The sparks fly upward. And just as inevitably as the sparks fly upward, man is born for trouble. Job chapter 14, verse 1. Job says, man who is born of woman, and that's pretty much all of us, I think. We're all born of women. Man who is born of woman is short-lived and full of trouble. You won't see that verse on the front of a Hallmark card anytime soon. First Corinthians chapter 7. Paul says that the married will have what? Trouble. Now marriage is a good thing. I've been married for seven years and I can attest to you it's a very good thing. Wouldn't go back to my uh, single days for anything in the world. Marriage is a good thing. But married people have trouble. You put two sinners under the same roof and inevitably at some point along the line going to have some trouble. Paul was troubled. Second Corinthians chapter 11. Now, if you can flip there quickly, you can do that, but I'm going to read this to you. Second Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 28. But keep your finger in James, of course, we'll go back to it. But second Corinthians 11 verses 23 through 28, the apostle Paul says this, he says, are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane, I more so, in far, and watch this list, in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes, do the math on that, 
Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers from the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. Apart from such things, external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all of the churches. Other than that, things were going great. (laughs) The Apostle Paul had trouble. Jesus was troubled. John chapter 11 when Lazarus died, says that Jesus was troubled. And then, of course, right before his crucifixion in the Garden of Gethsemane, he sweated drops of blood. His heart was troubled. And so it is an argument from the greater to the lesser. Dear friends, if the Lord Jesus Christ had trouble, you and I will have trouble. We will have trials. James says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Trials are inevitable, and they are also varied. The emphasis here is not so much on the number, but on the diversity of our trials that we will face. We will face health trials. We will face financial trials. We will have persecution either hard or soft persecution, at least some soft persecution. If you are living godly in Christ Jesus, you will feel and experience abandonment, alienation by family and friends. Alienation because of our stand for Christ. And that's hard, isn't it? Even by our own family members. Jesus says, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. He said, your enemies will be members of your own household. If you take a stand for Christ Jesus, if you live godly in the Lord Jesus Christ, chances are even members of your own family will turn against you. Your enemies will be members of your own household. Now we read that and we think, oh, that's just for somebody else. No, oftentimes it is exactly for us. And that's hard, isn't it? It's hard when our family members turn against us. It's hard when our family members uh, misunderstand us or or take offense because of our stand for the Lord Jesus Christ. It hurts. And oftentimes members of our own family can be the hardest ones to speak the truth to. And yet this will happen. Jesus said it would. And so it should not surprise us when it does. There is no distinction here in the text between external trials and internal trials. In other words, external trials, trials of health, trials of finances, trials even of persecution as opposed to internal trials, uh, struggles within our own heart. But what happens more often than not, these external trials eventually become what? Internal trials. A lot of different kinds of trials, variety of trials. They are inevitable and they are many and they are varied. So what is the meaning of trials? What's the meaning of these trials? There's a whole swath of Christianity, quote-unquote Christianity, out there that teaches that we should not have trials. John 10.10, I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. We should have the abundant life completely taken out of context. Some people think that misfortune should only come to the ungodly people. 
This is uh, Asaph's struggle in Psalm chapter 73. You might remember Asaph. And he said that he saw the prosperity of the wicked. He saw godly people suffering. And he saw wicked people prospering. And he struggled with that. In fact, he said, my feet came close to stumbling over this. Why would he see godly people suffer and wicked people prosper? That's the thought of many people today. That if you're godly, you should not suffer. Only the wicked should suffer, right? No. The age-old question, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? Is the wrong question. Dear friends, there are no good people. There is none righteous, no, not one. Romans chapter 3, there is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. We are all bad people. We are all lawbreakers. We have all sinned against a thrice holy God. The question is not, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? The real question is, why does God cause good things to happen to bad people? If God were to strike from me everything that I have, take away from me everything that I've got, take away my wife from me, take away my health from me, take every penny that I have and leave me lying in a ditch, cold and naked to die a slow and painful death and then send me straight to hell, God would have done me no wrong. He would have done me no wrong. It is not why God, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? How is it that God can cause good things to happen to bad people? We underestimate our own sinfulness, our own depravity. Some people think that adversity means that God is displeased with us. If something bad happens to you, you've done something wrong. You've got some sin in your life. You've got a lack of faith. You've done something wrong, and that's why God is getting you. God is punishing you. Well, that wasn't the case with Job, was it? He was upright, righteous, blameless. Doesn't mean he was sinless. But he had done nothing really deserving of all of these calamities that fell upon him. And yet God allowed Satan to strike from Job everything that he had. He was an upright man. He feared God. He shunned evil. And yet look at what God allowed Satan to do. His family destroyed, his, killed. His possessions destroyed. His own health deteriorated. Stephen in Acts chapter 7, he was stoned. Right before he was stoned, he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. A very tender scene. He saw Jesus standing at the right, not sitting, standing at the right hand of the Father. Standing as if ready to receive him. And he was stoned to death. Very painful death. Stoned for what? For being a Christian. The apostles were all martyred for their faith. All of them were martyred for their faith. And John was exiled on the island of Patmos. And I wonder oftentimes as I read through the New Testament, what is it in the New Testament? What is it in the book of Acts? What is it in the Corinthians? What, what is it in 2 Corinthians 11, for example, that we just read? What is it in the life of Stephen? What is it in the life of Paul? What is it in the life of John the Baptist who was beheaded? What is it in the life of Peter who was crucified upside down? What is it in the lives of the apostles that makes people think that a Christian is entitled to have his best life now. 
And yet that's the whole mantra of Joel Osteen's preaching. You should have your best life now. That's not biblical. Our best life is not this side of heaven. Our best life is not here. Our best life is on the other side of heaven. But Joel Osteen, for example, writes in his book about how he and his wife, Victoria, were looking for a good parking spot at the mall. But all the good parking spots were taken, but they kept believing God for a good parking spot. And they kept driving around the parking lot, believing God for a good spot. And wouldn't you know it, the car in the very front spot backed away, uh, backed out and pulled away just in time for Joel and Victoria to pull in and get that good parking spot up front. Joel says, that's the favor of God. Really. That's the favor of God, is it? Getting a good parking spot at the mall in the United States of America. Tell that to our brothers and sisters in Christ in Iran, in Syria. North Korea. Tell them the favor of God is getting a good parking spot at the mall in the United States of America. Why do these people teach these things? Why does Joel Osteen teach this? Why do all these other prosperity preachers teach this? Why do even many Southern Baptist preachers teach that you're supposed to have an abundant life and an abundant life means having things here on this earth? Why do they teach it? They teach it because they are suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, Romans 1.18. It's not that they don't know the truth. They know it. They just suppress it. They suppress it. Why? Because they hate God. Joel Osteen hates God. And you may think that's strong. No, that's truth. He hates God. He has created an idol. He has created a God made after his own image. It's not that he doesn't know what's in the Bible. Oh, he knows it. He just refuses to teach it. He hates the God of the Bible. And he preaches some other God, small g God, that he has created out of the vain ramblings of his own imagination. He hates the God of the Bible. So he preaches a different God. Dear friends, if you have responded to a painless gospel, a costless gospel, then you have responded to a false gospel. Salvation is free. Salvation is free. It's the gift of God. Discipleship is not. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, or verse 13, Paul says, All who live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Notice it does not say, some who live godly in Christ Jesus may be persecuted. All who live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And there are no exception clauses to that verse unless you live in the United States of America. If you are living godly in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted. Maybe not hard persecution. Maybe not being threatened with imprisonment, at least not yet. We don't live in a country like that, not yet anyway. But there should be at least some soft persecution, opposition at work, opposition from our friends, alienation from our members of our own family. There was a uh, missionary in India named Amy Carmichael. She did mission work in India about 100 years ago, a little less than 100 years ago. Amy Carmichael wrote a poem entitled, Hast Thou No Scar? I'll read this to you. Hast thou no scar? Hast thou no scar? 
no hidden scar on foot or side or hand. I hear thee sung as mighty in the land. In other words, I, I hear your name lauded by people. I hear thee sung as mighty in the land. I, th- I hear them hail thy bright ascendant star. Hast thou no scar? Hast thou no wound? Yet I was wounded by the archers, spent, leaned me against the tree to die and rent. By ravening beasts that compassed me, I swooned. Hast thou no wound? No wound, no scar. Yet as the master shall the servant be. And pierced are the feet that leadeth me. But thine are whole. Can he have followed far? Who hast no wound? Who hast no scar? If you are following the master, you should have scars. James says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Now, this word trials, pierosmos, it means, it means trouble. It means something that breaks tranquility. It, picture a, a calm uh, pond, a small lake, a calm pond on a still day, not a whisper of wind. And the surface of the water is just like glass. And you throw in a large stone and it does what? It breaks the tranquility. This is, this is the picture of trials. Trials do not in and of themselves denote anything evil. Now, if you have the King James translation, your King James says, consider it or count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter diverse temptations, King James. And that's a very poor rendering and my apologies to any of the King James only folks out there. Uh, that's not the right rendering. This word pierosmos in the Greek does not refer to a temptation in and of itself. It's not a subjective temptation. It refers to an objective difficulty, a trial, something that shatters tranquility. Purpose of trials. What are the purpose of trials in our lives? What purpose does God have for them? Number one, God designs trials to engender in us humility. Humility. Second Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 9, the Apostle Paul is writing. Now, he's writing this after he describes his rapturous trip into the third heaven. You remember this? He said, I was caught up into the third heaven. And he heard words that are inexpressible that man is not permitted to speak. And after this incredible rapturous experience, the Apostle Paul says in verses 7 through 9, he says, Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this thorn, I implored the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Paul had been caught up to the third heaven. An incredible, rapturous experience of which we know no details. And the temptation was there to boast in that. To boast, oh, I've been to the third heaven. So to keep from him from exalting himself... God sent this thorn, this scallops, in the, it, it, it literally means stake. Thorn's kind of weak. It should be a, not a thorn in the flesh, but a stake in the flesh. What was it? It was 
I believe it was opposition from false teachers, false brethren, those who are persecuting him, those who are calling into question his own apostolic authority. Paul said this was sent to him to keep him from exalting himself to humble him. Trials engender in us humility. Dear friends, none of us is without pride. The apostle Paul was not without pride. And this is the man who wrote roughly half of the New Testament. He was not without pride. And dear friends, you and I are not without pride. You and I are not without pride. As long as we live in this fallen world, in these fallen bodies, yes, we are new creatures in Christ. Yes, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. But we will never reach sinless perfection this side of heaven. And there is, there is a seed of pride in each and every one of us. And we need to realize that. And I want to tell you this from a theological standpoint. There is nothing that you and I do with 100% pure motives. Nothing. Nothing. And I can tell you, as I sit up here and bring God's Word to you, now I tried to do Romans 8.13, put to death the deeds of the body, but I know theologically, and I know from what this book teaches, that I will never reach sinless perfection this side of heaven. And even as I sit up here and preach God's Word to you, I know that I'm not, even I'm not doing this with 100% pure motives. And so what does God do graciously for us to help us to put to death the deeds of the body, to help us to, to kill our pride? He gives us trials. He sends us trials to humble us so that we will not exalt ourselves. None of us does anything with 100% pure motives. So trials engender humility, number one. Also, number two, trials serve as conformation not confirmation conformation conformation into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ Romans chapter 8 verse 28 the apostle Paul says and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose for those whom he foreknew he also predestined to become conformed Conformation to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. It's a beloved passage of scripture, but one that is often misunderstood. Notice what Romans 8.28 does not say. Romans 8.28 does not say that all things are good. It's not what it says. Dear friends, all things aren't good. It is not good when someone is killed in a car accident. It is not good when a child gets cancer. That's not a good thing. It's not good when a man walks into a church and opens fire on people and slaughters them. That's not good. That's not a good thing. Romans 8.28 does not say all things are good. It says that God causes all things to work together for the good. Everything's not good. But God, in his sovereign decree, causes all things to work together for the good, ultimately for his good purpose. Can we fully understand that this side of heaven? No. But we trust in our sovereign God. Psalm chapter 119, verse 71 says this. David says, It is good for me that I was afflicted, 
that I might learn your statutes. It's good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. And David was not simply saying, oh, it, it, it's good that I twisted my ankle because it, it gives me some time to kick back in the lazy boy and catch up on my reading. It's good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. God often uses trials. He uses times of affliction. He uses times of persecution to teach us about himself in an experiential way, to conform us more into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is often in times of trials. It is often in times of suffering. It is often in times of sickness. It is often in times of persecution. That we become more and more conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. He suffered, we will suffer. And it is times of trials that serve us, serve to make us lean harder on Christ. Serve to, to cause us to lean more harder, more hardly on the sovereignty of God. And we lean hard on Him because we are brought to our knees. We are brought to the end of ourselves. This is what trials do. The great evangelist, Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon, he said this. He said, I am certain that I never did grow in grace one half so much anywhere as I have upon the bed of pain. Wisdom in that. Wisdom. Also, trials are tests for us. They test us. Verse 3. James says, Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Trials test our faith. The very word here, test, denotes just that. It is a test. The verb form of this word means to investigate. It means to find out. And dear friends, there is nothing quite like a trial that will investigate, that will find out our true character. Oh, it's easy to be faithful to the Lord when things are just going swimmingly. Nothing like a good old trial to see what we're really made of, to see how hard we really are leaning on the sovereignty of God. Testing was a common theme. It was well known to the recipients of James' letter. You see testing often in the Old Testament, for example. And um, Abraham was a prominent example of the, in the Old Testament of one who was tested by God severely. Take your son Isaac up on that mountain, sacrificing. That was a test. You want to talk about a test, that was a test. And he passed it. Now we see other people in the Old Testament who were tested and they failed. The Hebrews wandering around in the wilderness, they were tested they failed. So testing, very prominent theme in the Old Testament, a theme which would have been very familiar to the recipients of James' letter. And true Christians will be driven to their knees by trials, by tests. It has been said that true spiritual growth is a growth downward. True spiritual growth is a growth downward. When we have a lower estimation of ourselves, it is only when we have a lower estimation of ourselves that we will have a higher view of God. The fires of trials will also burn up false professions. 
Lakewood Church, Joel Osteen, not to pick on Joel Osteen this morning, but to pick on Joel Osteen this morning. <laughs> Lakewood Church, largest quote-unquote church in the United States of America. The Your Best Life Now guy. When and if, or maybe I should say if and when, real persecution comes to this country, Lakewood Church will go from being the largest church in the United States of America to a ghost town overnight. You'll be able to hear a pin drop on Sunday morning in Lakewood Church if real persecution comes to this country because that doesn't fit their theology. That doesn't fit what they're being taught. Nothing like a good trial to burn up false professions. Life has trials for anyone, lost or saved. The prosperity gospel promises people that things will get better. The Bible doesn't promise us that. In fact, for us, things will get worse. The Bible doesn't paint a pretty picture about the spiritual climate of the world as time goes on. It's not going to get better, dear ones. It's going to get worse. It's going to get worse. But God is sovereign and God is in control. John chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus says, If you continue in my word, then you are truly my disciples. What is one of the hallmarks of a genuine Christian? One who endures through the trials. If you continue, not if you make a brief profession of faith, if you continue in my word, then you are truly my disciples. 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, the apostle John says, They went out from us. Because they were not really of us. They went out from us because they were not of us. Why did they leave us? Because they were never of us to begin with. They were false professors. And when the trials of life come, that sun beats down and it scorches these little shoots that come up. And there's so many people that may make a profession of faith in Christ because they've been in some evangelistic meeting or some evangelistic crusade and they've had some emotional music going and the lights were dimmed and people were holding hands and crying and slobbering all, one and all, all over one another. But, but then when the show is over and the trials of life come and that sun beats down, it'll burn up those false professions. It's the Reiki soil that Jesus spoke of in Matthew chapter 13. Trials test us. They are tests of our faith. What is our response to trials? Looking at verse 2 again. Our response. James says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Consider it joy. Count it joy. Now, this does not say, enjoy your trials, my brethren. It doesn't say that. The Bible does not teach that we are to enjoy trials. That's not what it says. It says we are to count them as joy. Dear friends, trials are not to be enjoyed. We're not supposed to enjoy trials. That's why they're called trials. They're not enjoyable. And years ago, before I was truly converted, years ago, I used to say, and what I understand now is really false humility, I used to say that my cerebral palsy is one of the greatest gifts that God gave me. Cerebral palsy is not a gift. Is it a trial? Yeah. And though I don't do it perfectly, I try to count it as joy. 
it doesn't mean I enjoy it. And I'm not going to sit up here with some superficial, hyper-spirituality and say, I like being crippled. It's a lot of fun. It's not. Are there people who suffer way worse? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. People who suffer far, far worse than I do. But whatever the trial is, the Bible doesn't say we're to enjoy them. And so please don't think, if you are going through a trial today, you find yourself in a trial, please don't think that there's something wrong with you or there, you're not spiritual enough because it's getting to you, because you don't enjoy it. We're not supposed to enjoy them. It doesn't say enjoy them. It says count it as joy. This is an accounting term. Count it as joy. In other words, here's what James was saying. We're not supposed to enjoy our trials But you can count them as joy. You can count on it that on the other side of the trial, joy will come. Joy will come. Take it to the bank. Joy will come. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. I love this passage. 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through 10. You might want to jot it down or make a, a note of it. I love Paul's transparency here. Now, let's keep in mind, this is Paul. This is the man who was knocked off of his horse on the Damascus Road. This is the man who was caught up into the third heaven. Notice what he says, verses 8 through 10. Paul says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. That's real transparency. Paul was going through trials, a heap of them. And you know what? They got to him. He wasn't enjoying them. They were trials. But notice that he did not break. We are afflicted, but we're not crushed. We are perplexed. He was confused by it. He didn't understand what was going on. We're perplexed. But we don't despair. Confused, yes. Lacking in understanding of what was going on, yes. But he didn't despair. He was persecuted, but he knew that in his persecution he was not forsaken. He was struck down, but not destroyed. It's just like Asaph. The parallel to this in the Old Testament would be Asaph in Psalm chapter 73 when Asaph said his, his feet were to the point of stumbling. He almost stumbled. The Apostle Paul, when trials came his way, he wavered. He almost stumbled, but he didn't. He almost got to the point he wanted to throw in the towel, but he didn't. John the Baptist did the same thing, didn't he, when he was arrested. John, this is the man who baptized Christ. And he was arrested, soon to be beheaded. And so he sent word from his jail cell. And when you think jail cell, don't think of the you know, nice facilities we have today. He sent word from his jail cell through his disciples. He said, Go and find Jesus and ask him this question. Are you the Messiah? Or should we be looking for someone else? 
And so they went to Christ with this question. And what did Jesus say? Are you kidding me? Seriously, did John the Baptist really ask you to ask me that question? No man born of woman is greater than John the Baptist. He wavered. But he didn't fall. Sometimes God will allow trials in our life so severe that it feels like we're going to fall and we're going to be like Asaph, we're going to be like Paul, we're going to be like John the Baptist, and God may get us, he may allow us to get right up to the edge and we peer down into the abyss. But God's going to save us. He's going to keep our feet from stumbling. His arm is strong. Those whom he saves, he sanctifies. Those whom he saves, he seals. And his children, who have been adopted, been adopted into the family of God through the merits of the Lord Jesus Christ, yes, we may waver, but we're not going to fall. We're not going to apostatize. God keeps his own. God keeps his own. James says, Consider it, count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Knowing. Look at that word, knowing. How do we know? How do we know that the testing of our faith produces endurance? How do we know that our trials come through the sovereign hand of God to us? How do we know this? How do we know that God will preserve us? By study. By studying His Word. That's how we know, by studying God. Dear friends, growing in the grace of the, in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ is not a passive endeavor. We don't grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ by osmosis. You can't just put your Bible under your pillow at night and go to sleep and wake up with a head full of knowledge. You can't say, just sit back and say, Lord, help me to understand you and do nothing. What does the Bible say? We are to study to show ourselves approved unto God. Study. You cannot expect to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ apart from reading and studying and obeying this book. There are no shortcuts. Please don't ask God to grant you peace and assurance and comfort and wisdom and grant you all of these things that you need to live this life, don't ask him for those things if you're not reading and studying this book. Now, if you are reading and studying this book, yes, you do pray for those things. And the Holy Spirit of God will illumine the meaning of this book to your hearts and to your minds. And it is only by studying this book that we can come to know God. And when our knowledge of God is deepened, our love for God will be deepened. But it's not some automatic thing. You don't hook up to God's iCloud and put in your password and God's just going to shoot down some information to you. Study. And yet the vast majority of Christians don't do that. Professing Christians don't do that. They may show up here on Sunday morning bring their Bibles. Chances are the next time they'll pick up their Bibles, Bibles back up, be the next Sunday. Don't expect to be able to go through trials in the way in which God wants you to go through them if you're not reading and studying this book. Study to show yourself approved unto God. 
Study the attributes of God. If you've never done a study on the attributes of God, the perfections of God, if you've never done a study on that, may I, may I joyfully encourage you to do that? If you've never studied His omniscience, His goodness, His faithfulness, His wrath, His mercy, His holiness, His justice, His righteousness, His immutability that God does not change. If you've never done a study on the attributes of God, please do yourself a favor. Do yourself a favor and do a study on the attributes of God. There's a couple of good books out there. One by a man named Stephen Charnock, C-H-A-R-N-O-C-K. Stephen Charnock's book is about that thick. It's It's a big book. Uh, if you want something a little bit more digestible, A.W. Pink, like the color pink, has a good book on the attributes of God. Pink will tell you what time it is. Charnock will tell you how to make the watch. But they're, but they're both good reasons. Get both of them. If you've never done a study on the attributes of God, do yourself a favor. Do a good study on the attributes of God. It, we, we, you cannot trust someone who you do not know. And the more we trust, the more we know God, the more we trust Him. Do yourself a favor. Study the attributes of God. Sometimes we hear people say, are there things that God cannot do? Is there anything that God can't do? <laughs> Trick question. Yes. There are things that God cannot do. God can't right. God cannot sin. God cannot deny himself. God cannot, not that he will not, he cannot act towards us in any way that is outside of his character and his nature. In everything that he does for us, every interaction he has, every, everything that he does in our life is in 100% congruence with his character and his nature. And when we know God's character, when we know his nature, we can trust him knowing that no matter what it is that comes our way, no matter how bad the report may be from the doctor, no matter how bad the situation may be in our families, no matter how dire the financial straits may be, no matter... If we've lost our job or the bank's about to foreclose, or no matter what it is, God not only will not, He cannot act towards us in any way that is outside of His character and His nature. Spurgeon said, The sovereignty of God is the pillow on which I lay my head at night. Study the attributes of God and rest in His sovereignty. Rest in his goodness. First Peter chapter five, six through seven. The apostle Peter says there he says this Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. Humble yourselves under his mighty hand, that he may exalt you at the proper time. And look at what he says casting all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. What a wonderful promise. We can cast all of our anxiety, all of our cares upon him, all of our concerns. We cast them upon him. Why? Because he cares for you. Do you know what this literally says in the Greek, how the Greek literally is worded? This is what it says in the Greek. We can cast all of our anxieties upon him because it matters to him about you. It matters to him 
about you. That is an awesome thought. The Alpha and Omega, the one who spoke the universe into existence. It matters to him about you. The one who is keeping every atom and every molecule in its proper place. He upholds all things by the word of his power. It matters to him about you. That is an awesome thought. That is a comforting thought. Whatever the trial is in your life, dear ones, whether it's severe or maybe not quite so severe, it matters to him about you. You are engraved on the palm of his hand. Trials produce endurance. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing, by study, knowing that the testing of your faith produces what? Endurance. Trials produce endurance. The word here for endurance is hupamane. And hupamane does not refer to bringing someone out of a trial. It refers to them enduring underneath the trial. Enduring through the trial, more literally underneath the trial. The testing of our faith, these trials produce endurance. God, by the indwelling of his Holy Spirit, will help but will not necessarily remove us out of the trial. He will enable us to endure underneath the trial. I can remember growing up, um, Southern Baptist, Every Wednesday night, we'd have prayer meeting. Go to prayer meeting, and we'd have a little meal that usually wasn't too good. But we'd have this little meal, and then after we eat, we have prayer meeting. And we would always ask for prayer requests. And you go to Wednesday night prayer meeting, or whatever it is, and what are 99.9% of the prayer requests about? Somebody's sick. Somebody's in the hospital. Somebody's having surgery. 99.9% of them, somebody's sick. Pray for them. And most of the, oftentimes the prayers were for healing. Take that sickness away. I am not against praying for a sick person to be healed. I'm not against that. Don't hear me wrong. I'm not against that. And I do that from time to time. But maybe sometimes we should spend a little bit more time, rather than praying for a sickness to be removed, spend a little bit more time praying for things like this. Lord, I pray that your will would be done, whatever that is. And in the midst of this trial, in the midst of this persecution, in the midst of this sickness, help me to be found faithful. Give me the strength to endure through the trial, to endure underneath the trial. Help me to lean hard on you. Teach me your statutes. Help me to understand that it is good that I am afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. And help me to carry your name well. Help me to carry your name well through this trial so that Christ will be honored. Christ will be glorified through the trial. 
conform me into the image of your son, Jesus Christ, using this trial. Maybe we should spend a little bit more time praying for things like that rather than just take it away. Now let's look at the, the fruit of trial. The fruit of trials, trials produce endurance. And also, James says, and let endurance, and that, that is the mark of a, of a believer again. We endure through these trials. We endure to the end. It's the hallmark of regeneration. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So trials produce perfection. Is this sinless perfection? No. That's not what it is. It is not sinless perfection. Dear friends, salvation is not perfection. It's direction. Which direction is your life going? Those who would teach that if you are a Christian, you can attain a state of sinless perfection. You can, you can get to the point, you, you can become so mature that you never sin. You, ne- you never sin. Sinless perfection. That is someone who does not understand human depravity. That is someone who does not stand, understand total inability. That is someone who does not understand the gospel. That is someone who does not understand progressive sanctification. A Christian can and does stumble into sin, but a Christian does not swim in sin. A Christian does not enjoy it, does not look for opportunity to sin. This, this is not sinless perfection. Rather, it is this, that God in Jesus Christ has equipped us with everything we need to face these trials. We are fully equipped unto every good work through this book, through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God. Think about that, dear friends. If you are here this morning and you are in union with the Lord Jesus, the Bible says you have become a partaker of the divine nature. It doesn't mean you're divine. It doesn't mean you're God. You're a partaker of the the divine nature in that the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the triune Godhead, indwells you. You have his complete, inerrant, infallible, all-sufficient word. The complete revelation of himself. You have his word. You have the Bible. You are indwelt by his Holy Spirit who illumines the meaning of this text. You're thoroughly equipped. You have everything you need to face any trial no matter what it is. You have his word. You're indwelt by his Holy Spirit. You have the fellowship with the brethren. You must be a part of a church. A true Christian will want to have fellowship with other believers. Thoroughly equipped. We have everything that we need. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 7. 1 Peter 1, 6 through 7 says this. In this you greatly rejoice. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary... You have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. To result in the praise and the glory and the honor at the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Why does God permit trials? To engender humility, to conform us into the image of his son Jesus Christ, to produce endurance, and ultimately they result to the praise of the glory of his grace. Sometimes God is most glorified in us when we suffer, when we are persecuted, when we're going through trials. And everything that God does, ultimately everything that he does, is for his glory. Did you know even your salvation? We often think of Jesus died on the cross for us. He did. He died on the cross on our behalf. He bore the wrath of God so that you and I would not have to. But ultimately, Jesus died for God. And there's that song out there. When he was on the cross, I was on his mind. No, no, no. When he was on the cross, the glory of God was on his mind. And it is our privilege to be partakers of the merits of his work on the cross. It is our privilege to be adopted into the family of God through what Christ did for us on the cross. But even our own salvation, ultimately, yes, we are the beneficiaries of it, but ultimately, it's to the praise of the glory of his grace. To the praise of the glory of his grace. Philippians chapter 1, verse 29 says this, Paul says in Philippians 1, 29, he says, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake. It's been granted for whose sake? Your sake? It's been granted to us for the sake of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Our faith in God is granted by him. Our faith in him has been granted to us. Not only has our faith been granted, it has also been granted to us. It is a privilege for us to suffer for the glory of God. Praise be his name. Praise be his name. And I want to close just with the gospel. Dear ones, if you are here this morning... In all likelihood, just about all of us in here, we're either going through a trial or we're headed to one. And I never want to take it for granted that everybody in here, everybody in any church is is in union with the Lord Jesus Christ. Has there been a time in your life when you've been convicted by God's Holy Spirit that you are a sinner? That you have broken God's laws? We are all sinners. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. And if we break even one of God's laws, it is though we have broken them all, says James. And because we have sinned against a holy, holy, holy God, the God who is eternal, the punishment of that sin is also eternal. And all of us deserve his wrath. You deserve it. I deserve it. But God has made a way of escape. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to this earth. And Jesus lived a perfect life, never broke any of God's laws. His life was completely pleasing to God the Father. He was the lamb without blemish. 
And Jesus' life was not taken from him. Jesus willingly gave his life. He laid his life down willingly on the cross, and he bore the wrath of God. He bore the punishment of your sins on himself. He satisfied God's wrath. God's wrath was poured out on the sinless, blemishless Lamb of God. And Jesus satisfied that perfect wrath with his perfect sacrifice. Died physically. And three days later, raised from the dead, proved himself to be who he said he was, God in human flesh. And the only way to have that new life in Christ is to turn from sins, repent from sins, and place your trust in his finished work on the cross. You cannot save yourself. Our works are as filthy rags before a holy God. Abandon your works. Abandon your self-righteousness. Come to the end of yourself and throw your mercy or throw yourself on the mercies of the Lord Jesus. Jesus says, the one who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. If you are convicted of your sin, you know you're a sinner and you're not certain where you are with the Lord Jesus Christ. Come to the end of yourself. Abandon your good works. Trust in him. Ask him to forgive you of your sins. Ask him to grant you repentance. And if you come in true sorrow over your sin, he will cause you to be born again. He will make you alive in Christ. You'll pass from death to life. And you can know that no matter how hard this life is, no matter how severe the trials, they are, for, they are temporary. This life is short. Eternity is forever. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our Father, we do, we do thank you for your sufficient word. Lord, we understand from your word that man's life is short. It is full of trouble. And these trials are hard. But we understand that your grace is sufficient. We understand that we can cast our cares upon you. Because it matters to you about us. Father, I pray as your gospel has been presented, I pray that your Holy Spirit do the work that only he does. Convict of sin, righteousness, repentance. Grant repentance, Lord. Call your sheep to yourself. All for the glory of our King Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.